James chapter 1 verse 17 has these unforgettable words for each of us. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Whether it be a blessed day of sunshine, the first day of the week, an improvement in health, or the birth of a grandchild, God is good. And God has in fact showered each of us in so many ways, and as you and I begin a new week, together in the way we are today, I hope that we each can be enthused, eagerly able to serve the Lord our God this coming week. You may have noted the title of the lesson surrounds a critical aspect of our worship, and we're going to spend a few moments this morning reflecting on the Lord's Supper. And I think this introductory slide may in fact give you a clue as to how I wish for you and me to do that today. You'll notice on that particular slide... The Lord's Supper, I think all would agree, is significant, it's vital, it's important, it's essential. And yet that importance perhaps is easy for you and I to pass by. It occupies, oh, a 10, 12-minute portion of our Sunday morning service, and of course also during the night service on Sunday. But let us never forget that for which it stands the circumstances surround it, and today, why don't we use a question and answer format to develop in our heart a reconsideration of the beauty of this memorial and, in fact, the essential power that's contained in it. As you and I do that, of course, we will today at least have the opportunity to embed these thoughts in our heart and use them here in a few moments as we partake of this together. The opening question of this question and answer format will be this one. Inasmuch as we, of course, face this remarkable memorial, it would be entirely right to ask, so when was this memorial established? And what were the circumstances surrounding that establishment? It's in part the following. I ask that for this reason. Isn't it so that you and I are aware that there are many memorials, many rituals or even traditions that individuals often keep? But in almost every case... A generation will arise and they soon will lose the mission or the appreciation of what was the founding matters concerning it and soon that tradition is lost. They stop observing it and it's just a matter of history at that point. You and I can probably think of many things that say a hundred years ago were not only common practice but it was understood that that appeared to be the right way to do it. But yet with the change of culture, the coming of technology, that is its soul. Are you aware of the fact that we are about to observe a memorial shortly this morning that was established almost 2,000 years ago? And not only that, it has been faithfully kept for roughly 100,000 Sundays. If you pull out a calendar and count the number of Sundays that have occurred over the last 2,000 years, it's roughly 100,000. I'm going to submit to you that for roughly 100,000 uninterrupted Sundays... The Lord's Supper has been observed. To say that's impressive is an understatement. I can't think of any other memorial kept with the volition of man that would come close to being numbered that many times. And yet as you and I observe it again, you and I do so with courage and with fidelity, with faithfulness. And let's take in our mind's eye for a moment back to the scene of its establishment. Jesus had gathered with His apostles on that Wednesday evening just prior to His crucifixion the next day. 
As he assembled on that Wednesday night, of course, it had been the matter that God had ordained of the Jews that ever since the days of Exodus 12, that was to be maintained and kept. It was to be a circumstance whereby they, on the 14th day of the first month of every year, they were to celebrate it. Now you would immediately note this, they celebrated that Passover once a year, we do the Lord's Supper once a week. Doesn't that highlight in us an integrity, a character of just how important this is? But again, returning to our record, you well remember that as Jesus assembled with those apostles on that night, the upper room has, was made ready, and they celebrated that Passover celebration. And in fact, that was the day just before the Feast of Unleavened Bread that began one day later. And as Jesus met with them that night, they, of course, used unleavened bread. They used the fruit of the vine. But notice the Lord didn't amalgamate this Lord's Supper in with that Jewish feast. It was after supper that He, in fact, took emblems that you and I will describe later, and He utilized them to establish a lasting memorial. You'll notice near the top of that slide, there is something then very clearly historical about the Lord's Supper. Isn't it true that there are times individuals may keep a tradition or a ritual and they do so really not understanding the history of its establishment? It's merely what dad did, what granddad did, but they really don't understand anything deeper. Would you read again in 1 Corinthians 11 with me? What was it that Paul reminded the Corinthian brethren? I'll begin reading in verse 23. For I have delivered, I'm sorry, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also He took the cup when He had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. It's easy to see, isn't it, the historical appeal. Paul said, don't you know, Corinthians, the same night in which he was betrayed. This is what happened, and I received it, he said, of the Lord. Paul appealed to history, and of course you and I, in correctness, would always wish to do the same. The partaking of the Lord's Supper is not just merely something to consume ten minutes of the morning worship service. It is far deeper. It is far more significant. In fact, as we'll find in a moment, it has a strong correlation to our spiritual health. But you might immediately note with me that early church was faithful to keep it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, Paul made these statements to them. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there will be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. One must at least admit the Corinthians still understood the needfulness of celebrating the observance we call the Lord's Supper. They were coming together. They considered it a vital part of what they were doing. That doesn't change the fact they were abusing it to some degree and there were some misunderstandings about it, but they, at least they understood the need to keep it. 
It is with that in mind. What about question two? What else might you and I be quick to ask about it? I would point your attention to this. I mentioned a moment ago, 100,000 consecutive Sundays, this has been observed. Why would any group of people continue an observance that faithfully for that long? It is easy to see it must be founded upon something unsurpassingly important. The culture and the fad of time will never do away with it. The features, when you and I know our mission individuals who go to far distant places, those brethren there, though the culture is so different, though the lifestyle may bear little resemblance to ours, they still observe the wonderful nature of the Lord's Supper. And so with regard to the purpose, look at verse 26. It's the next verse after a reading. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till He come. The observance you and I call the Lord's Supper, among other things, is a declarative proclamation of our conviction, not only in Jesus Christ, but the fact that He will come again. Note the power in that kind of statement. There are a lot of things in which you and I have no idea what the future will hold, but this much as Christians we know for certain Jesus is coming back. There's not the slightest doubt in our heart or mind about this. We don't know when, but we're going to observe this and we're going to teach our children to do it and we're going to insist in them that they maintain it. And it shall be ever so until time shall be no more. Doesn't that in your heart and mind, ring with an element of superiority, an element of absolute impressiveness. To that I might add another verse. I've asked you to consider several different places in the New Testament where that Greek word occurs that appears in this passage. Now the King James reads it again in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till He come. That word show comes from a Greek word that literally means to declare solemnly. To declare solemnly. When you and I take this Lord's Supper, it is a very solemn declaration of our faith and conviction in that for which it stands the historical circumstances surrounding it, and for the truth that it shall prevail unaltered and undeterred until the trumpet's going to blow, until time will be no more. The Lord's Supper is that remarkable. It is to that, I might add, one more verse at the bottom. Not only is it a proclamation concerning the Christ and concerning the features not only surrounding His death but of His second coming, but 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, previous chapter, makes this observation. For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. As Christians, there's a truth in that that is truly spectacular, isn't it? Notice the unity, the unison that is proclaimed relative to the Lord's Supper. Let me read it again. We being many, we as individuals, are one bread. Here's a place in the Bible where you and I as Christians are likened unto bread. We are one bread and furthermore, one body. 
as if that's not impressive enough, the verse closes like this. We are all partakers of that one bread. The fact that we, though individuals, individual Christians, are bound together by the blood of Christ into one family of God, we take of one bread. We observe one supper. And we do this as a continuing element, not only of the one common bond we enjoy, but of our common trust and faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Question number three. After these first two... Some additional questions that probably come to you would be, so here's a memorial. As we've already noted, it's lasted for a whole lot of centuries now. What elements are to be in it? That is to say, what particular matters comprise this supper? Well, again, we aren't left to our own devices. We aren't left to any wonderment. In fact, I would ask you to notice that the, at the top statement, wasn't it true that, again, on that night prior to His crucifixion, it was the Lord who took unleavened bread and fruit of the vine? I would ask you to notice Luke's accounting of that in Luke chapter 22. Would you please turn back there with me for just a moment? Luke chapter 22, we'll begin reading in verse number 19. And He took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is My body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Now remember, this meal involved a number of matters. You may recall there was lamb, there was herbs, there was various other things from the book of Exodus in the Old Testament that God commanded them to use, but the Lord didn't use all of that. When He instituted the Lord's Supper, He didn't use herbs. He didn't use the other features of a roasted lamb. He took unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. And you'll notice He very carefully distinguished the, util the utility of them. He said, take, eat, as He broke that bread. So they knew He wasn't talking about the lamb, and they knew He wasn't talking about the other elements. Isn't it interesting, as you think about those elements that he utilized, that's the very same ones that Paul referenced in our text. In verse number 23, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Paul here didn't make any reference to the herbs or to the other aspects of the lamb, but he did mention the bread. And then two verses later, he called our attention to the fruit of the vine. The elements comprising that Lord's Supper then are these which not only the Lord had utilized and dictated on that night in which He, he instituted it, but here some 35 years later, we notice that Paul to the church in Corinth said it's the same elements. They haven't changed. Partly the reason I suggest that is you and I know well that quite often culture, as it evolves, it changes the particulars of things. Isn't that so? For instance, the Apostle Paul never spoke in a microphone like this. He didn't. But yet over the features of time and the inventions of the human family, 
improvements, or maybe I should say features whereby a greater efficiency could then be utilized have come into play. There may come a time that individuals may reason, can't we do better than these elements? Maybe something is cheaper. Maybe something it's easier to obtain. Maybe something that more cultures around the world would have access to. And the answer must invariably be no. There is no improvement that might be made for these are what the Lord dictated. These are what He wanted. Now because of that, I've asked you to notice several verses that, that again make mention of that fruit of the vine and the unleavened bread. You and I thrill at the thought of using them because the Lord did. And He said to, and Paul told the Corinthians to do that. That's exciting, isn't it? Question number four. As you and I at least move past the elements, question four is, what about the frequency? Maybe you have heard individuals speak about the fact that as you take a particular memorial or as you involve yourself in it, maybe if you do it often enough, it loses its power, it loses its sense. You begin to take it for granted. Well, may I say it was the Lord who dictated every first day of the week. Now, I know there have been some in the human family who maybe for those reasons have agreed, why don't we do it once a month? Why don't we do it four times a year? That is to say, once every quarter. Why not even once a year? And you and I recoil in disbelief at that. For you and I remember that Jesus said it like this. Could I call to your attention Matthew 26, beginning in verse 29. It was on that occasion that, again, that's Matthew's accounting of the establishment of the Lord's Supper. In fact, I'd like to begin reading with verse 26, but listen to the Lord's own words. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until... That day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's something about then the kingdom and its attachment to this. Maybe that helps us appreciate the fidelity with which those early Christians looked upon the celebration, the memorial called the Lord's Supper. How often did they keep it? Let's look at Acts chapter 20. In verse number 7 of that chapter, we have this inspired record. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Now that text says, on the first day of the week, what did they do? They came together, why? To break bread. The celebration you and I call the Lord's Supper was a critical, arguably, the central part of what they looked forward to doing when they came together. And yet as they came together, how often does it, did, did they do this? The text says, upon the first day of the week. May I suggest to you, every week, if it has any day at all, will have a first day. And of course that reminds us of the beautiful scene surrounding the text of Acts 20 verse 7. You and I have often noted that Paul was in a very dramatic hurry to arrive at Jerusalem so that he could celebrate the Pentecost, and yet he tarried with brethren 
for seven days in Troas. Why didn't they celebrate the Lord's Supper on Tuesday so he could get going? Or Wednesday or Thursday because you don't take it that day. There's only one authorized day to observe it. But it's the first day of every week. And that's how often Paul looked forward to keeping it. And he assembled with those precious brethren in Troas and observed it on that first day of the week. That frequency maybe takes us to notice in 1 Corinthians 16, notice the brethren also contributed on the first day of the week. So when they came together, another part of that which they did, they gave as they'd been prospered. It's a lovely thought that these occurrences have now stretched over all of these Sundays, almost a 100,000 of them. And you and I still faithfully do the same things they did. These first four questions that we have considered perhaps take us to question five. Question five, who is permitted with the blessing of God to celebrate this Lord's Supper? I mean, you and I perhaps could ask or at least appreciate it like this. There have been many memorials that the human family has devised and developed, but those memorials have again passed over time or they're only for selected individuals. As you and I start this one, we read a verse a moment ago taken from Matthew 26, and it was there Jesus said, I shall not henceforth take of this fruit of the vine, this, this memorial, until I keep it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now you remember when Jesus made that statement, the kingdom hadn't yet been established. Again, the kingdom is the church, according to Colossians 1.13. But yet once the kingdom was established, it would faithfully observe and keep the Lord's Supper. And you and I look forward to that still in just a few minutes later this morning. Another passage that of course enters into that, if this be noted, if indeed this memorial is a very special matter to be utilized by those in the kingdom, doesn't that indicate those not in the kingdom have no right to partake of it? Those not in the kingdom would not have right or would they be expected to. And therefore, that person who's never become a Christian, that person who's never been added by Christ to that kingdom, Acts 2.47, it wouldn't be proper for that person to partake of the Lord's Supper. For after all, this supper is for those in the kingdom. It's for those who, in fact, thrillingly and faithfully strive to appreciate the blessing and the life that's theirs through Jesus. Those participants, of course, you and I should think rather carefully as you and I imagine some additional lessons, at least from that point, that will come in number seven in just a moment. But for this point, what about number six? Aren't you impressed with the vision that correlates to the Lord's Supper? Paul, in fact, stated all of these points. Let me highlight them. The Lord's Supper, in fact, is a memorial that looks backward. We've already highlighted the historical feature of it, taking our mind back to the scene of the cross, the features that occurred on that day, the life that the Lord gave and the blood that He shed. For after all, isn't it true His body is represented by the bread and the blood He shed represented by the, by the fruit of the vine? But not only does the Lord's Supper look backward, it looks forward. 
In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, Ye do proclaim the Lord's death till He come in this observance. There could be many things that could happen in our world or even to our country that might make it a challenge, even a difficult, dangerous thing to partake of it, and we will never be deterred. We will partake of this. So long as there's breath within us and we desire to please God. Not only that, notice the Lord's Supper forces us to look inward. That's the third idea I listed. Could I at this point invite you to notice as I read several of the verses that occur in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 beginning in verse 27. Verses 27 and following. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep." For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. And you'll notice in that, Paul highlighted an inward introspection to the Lord's Supper. Verse 28 again rings with power, but let a man examine himself. As we eat, partake of this Lord's Supper... It not only causes us to reflect on what the Lord did for us and the blessings we enjoy because of that, but it should in fact motivate us to appreciate the need for a faithful, committed, dedicated life to Him. Paul said, let a man examine himself. The actual Greek word means to prove. Are you and I passing the examination? Are we passing that test? Am I examining myself in such a way? Am I serving the Lord? in a way indicative of what this supper indicates? Well, that question, again, we'll have more to say in just a moment. But for now, notice there's one last thing. Not only does it cause us to look backward and forward and inward, but it also causes us to look outward. We make an open proclamation. If a visitor were to come to our assembly, a person of the community or even someone else they would see a group of people who are faithful to keep that Lord's Supper. And they're not ashamed of it. And we do so with a degree of consideration that in fact is based upon one far higher than we. Now it's true that the fads and the traditions and the fancies of men are based on human motivation, but not this one. It's the Lord who said, This do in remembrance of me. It is not enough merely to think back to the cross. It's not enough to reflect on it. There's something to be done. And though men may often not like it, the time may come men persecute us for it, we'll still do it. Because we want to do what Jesus said to do, and we're going to do that. Because that's what makes Him happy. It's what glorifies Him. This do in remembrance of me. One last thing then, lesson number seven. As we've looked at all of these, now the question comes. We know who to, who to partake of it, and we know a number of the other features concerning it, but may I ask, how am I to partake of it? 
Has the Lord given us any details, any instructions relative to that? And you and I just read them a moment ago. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and following, never ceased to be very pointed, very demanding, and very direct. Let's develop some of the points like this. Although it may be easy to remember and to think back, again, that's not enough. There is something to be done. Twice Jesus said this, do, in remembrance of me. You might notice that's even on the front of the table that holds our emblems. This, do, in remembrance of me. And you might appreciate that's going to require some effort on your part and mine. For let me ask you, it's not merely the drinking of that grape juice, and it's not merely the breaking and eating of the bread. Because verse number 27 and following says, Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. If you or I abuse this by taking of it improperly, although it may be the right elements, if we take it improperly, we are making ourselves guilty of the very blood and body of Christ. We bring ourselves into condemnation. Let's read on, verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. You may notice in, in the nature of those verses, first of all, the word is unworthily. That's an adverb. It modifies the verb. So it modifies not you or me, but it modifies what we're doing. When the time comes to take this Lord's Supper, it is imperative in verse 29 that we discern. Discern is what the word Paul used, the Lord's body. We mustn't allow our mind to wander. We mustn't take of this in a flippant, trivial way. If we do, we drink damnation to our soul. What does that word discern mean? It comes from a Greek word that literally means to distinguish, to properly understand the distinctions between. This is not like eating a hamburger at McDonald's. It is fundamentally different. I know we ingest things into our body, the various foods and, and liquids that we eat and drink. This is not for that purpose. We've got to discern, that is to distinguish, to differentiate, to make a distinction between what's holy and what's common. You might recall that the people of Ezekiel's day erred greatly in that regard. In fact, God directly told the priest, you haven't made any distinction between the holy and the common. He said, I wished you'd have done that. You should have done that. And so when it comes to this, it's not the time to be thinking about a basketball game that might be played on TV this afternoon, perhaps some other athletic event, a movie I'm going to watch tomorrow night. It's not time to be thinking about lunch. It's time to be discerning the Lord's body to think with introspection, with care about what He did for us, what He gave up for us, and what we can do for Him. The Lord's Supper in many ways is the lifeblood of the church. If you lose significance in regard to that, Paul here says, you're sick. Verse number 30 puts it like this. 
for this cause. Now, that's a prepositional phrase that highlights that this error some in Corinth were doing. They weren't discerning the Lord's body. And he said, for this cause, many are weak and sick, Lee, among you. Now, my suspicion is perhaps physically they were perfectly fine, or at least it appeared so, but they were weak and sickly. Their spiritual health was lacking. In fact, they were in a very dire condition spiritually. And in fact, he went on in that verse and said, Many sleep. Sadly, it appears some had died. That is to say, their life was no longer upon this earth. They had died in a condition like this. May it never be so of us. May we long to be able to participate in the Lord's Supper with faithfulness and fidelity and with excitement and exuberance. On that slide, you'll notice that it's in chapter 10 that yet another truth is called to our attention. It's in verse number 16. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 reads, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? May we never forget that as we break that bread and as we drink of that cup, we are communing with Christ. He it is that we are joining forces with in terms of being citizens in His kingdom and longingly desiring to be faithful to Him. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, to borrow the wording of Revelation 19.16. Surely as we close that slide, it puts upon us then an incentive, a motivation. Back in verse 28, Paul had said, Let a man examine himself. As we partake of this bread and fruit of the vine, it would be a good time to ask, is my life in Christ what it ought to be? Or am I taking of this, in essence, hypocritically? Am I taking of this as if I'm a faithful follower, but really I'm not? Maybe I miss the services purposefully. Maybe I allow myself to talk various ways during the week, and that's the unbecoming of a Christian. Maybe I go to places I ought not go. Maybe I allow myself to watch things on the Internet that, quite frankly, is filthy. And I do this time and again. And yet on Sunday, I take of this as if everything is fine. It's not. There may not be anybody else in the audience that knows this, but rest assured, the Lord knows it. Let a man examine himself. And may I say, if things are then at fault, you do have an opportunity before we partake of that to make a response to Christ and to beg His forgiveness. Why don't we close our lesson then with one final slide. It's this one in which I would ask you to notice the Lord's Supper is then a powerful motivation highlighting in you and I as faithful Christians our part in an observance that's been ongoing now for 2,000 years, 20 centuries, 100,000 Sundays, and it will continue onward. As we've stated, the obligation that comes to you and me as we reflect on the Lord's Supper is beautiful, it's timeless, but it's also demanding. In a few moments, may you and I exert effort to concentrate, to not let our mind wander, to think about the Lord's Supper, to discern the Lord's body, to take of it in a way befitting of the way in which it was designed, 
today, if there's anybody in this audience that's not a faithful Christian, maybe you've never become a Christian. My friend, I hope you realize what you're missing after this lesson. You can't partake of this because to this point you've never applied the blood of the Savior to you. Don't you want to do that today? What better day could there be than the 18th day of February 2018? If we could assist you today, realize it's the Lord's plan of salvation. It isn't mine. You've got to believe with all of your heart that Jesus truly is the Messiah. You've got to repent of your sins. You've got to confess His name as a Son of God and be baptized. If we could assist you in that way today, what a joyous day it'd be for you for all eternity. On the other hand, if you have become a Christian and maybe you have taken to the Lord's Supper untold hundreds of times, but maybe of late it's become just a habit, a tradition, something to get through before we go home and do something else, I hope you'll examine yourself as we all are commanded to do. And if we're not partaking of it as we should by discerning the Lord's body, we've got to make a change, my friend. We must. We won't go to heaven if we don't. If today you need to respond by coming back to your first love, don't you know we'd be honored to pray to God for you? In recent weeks, we've had the privilege of praying for several who have asked for those prayers of forgiveness, and we would delight to do it again. If we could be of help to you in those ways, or maybe just for prayers of encouragement and strength, we as a Christian family want to do that. Right now, though, this is an opportune time and a convenient one. If anybody would wish to come, do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.